Thank you for standing by and welcome to the next DC FY20 results announcement. All participants are in a listen only mode. There will be a presentation followed by a question and answer session. If you wish to ask a question, you will need to press the star key followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. I'd now like to hand the conference over to Mr. Craig Scoggi, CEO. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the next DC results presentation for FY20. I'm joined today by our CFO, Oscar Komajewski. Uh, we're very pleased uh, to present another set of record results, uh, beginning on slide two, total revenue of over 205 million, an underlying EBITDA of 104.6. A record new sales year saw utilization grow strongly to finish FY20 with under uh, 70 megawatts under contract. Our network continues to expand, adding more than 2,000 interconnections to finish the year with over 13, is up 19%. And our ecosystem continues to evolve with over 1,300 customers and more than 640 partners, including 70 connectivity service providers. Turning to slide three, a strong performance in FY20 is highlighted by robust key operating metrics. And revenue from data center services increased by 31 million to 201 million. Contracted utilization increased by a net 17.4 megawatts or 33% to 70 megawatts. And interconnection revenue has grown to 8.1% of recurring revenue, up from 7.7% last year. Our results continue to demonstrate the company's operating leverage with underlying EBITDA increasing 23% to 104.6. Operating cash flow grew 37% to 54 million. And billing utilisation stood at 75% of contracted capacity at the 30th of June, indicating significant revenue to flow into FY21 and beyond as contracted capacity is bought online. We remain well capitalised to support our growth plans, with total liquidity at 30 June of approximately $1.2 billion, inclusive of our $300 million senior debt facility, which remains undrawn. Our balance sheet position has never been stronger, now underpinned by 2.7 billion of total assets. And at the 30th of June, we held property with a carrying value of over 850 million, as well as plant and equipment with a carrying value of over 700 million. Our data center fleet continues to evolve at a rapid pace. Our capex came in at 418 million versus guidance of 340 to 380, due to building completion coming in slightly earlier than we projected as well as the settlement of M3 Melbourne land upon satisfactory completion of due diligence in the last week of FY20. A P2 facility construction was completed, and that facility is now open to customers with two megawatts of installed capacity. M2 capacity expansion continues, with 15 megawatts of new capacity currently being fitted out. Importantly, M2's total target capacity has increased by 50% to 60 megawatts. S2 development continued with four new data halls being open, taking, taking total installed capacity to 22 megawatts. And S3 earthworks are in progress with practical completion of phase one, expected in the second half of FY22. I'll now hand over to Oscar to discuss the financial results in greater detail. Thank you, Craig. Let's now turn to slide six, a summary of our profit and loss for the year. The statutory results reflect Data center services revenue of 200.8 million, an increase of 18% on last year. Net loss before tax of 18.7 million. And it's worth noting that the net loss after tax includes derecognition of 33.5 million of carry forward tax losses. Despite this derecognition, these tax losses can be carried forward indefinitely and have no expiry date. Our non-statutory highlights include Underlying EBITDA of 104.6 million, an increase of 23% on last year. Direct costs of 38.1 million, which rose in line with contracted customer capacity, offset by improved power efficiency and energy costs. Facility costs, which increased 21.9 million as we ramped up operations across our facilities, particularly S2, P2, and M2 as well as corporate costs, which increased modestly to 35.8 million from 34 million a year ago, reflecting the operating leverage of our business. On to slide seven. Revenue generated from racks, suites, cross-connects, and other recurring sources 
accounted for 96% of total data center services revenue, with project revenues representing a lower proportion of revenue each year. The underlying EBITDA performance highlights NextDC's operating leverage as demonstrated by the 23% growth in earnings relative to 18% growth in data center services revenue. This trend is further demonstrated by the longer-term revenue and earnings CAGR figures on this page. Slide 8 sets out our revenue per unit metrics. Annualized revenue per square meter continued to grow during FY20, benefiting from contracted price escalation and increased connectivity, power density, and power recharge revenues. Annualized revenue per megawatt reflects some new, larger customer deployments coming online during the year. And it's worth noting that revenues from larger ecosystem-enhancing customer deployments increase over time due to higher usage of contracted power capacity, increased demand for interconnection, and the use of ancillary services over time. Slide 9 summarizes our balance sheet position and cash flows. At 30 June, NextTC held property with carrying value of 854 million, as well as plan equipment with a carrying value of 704 million. Our net assets at the end of the year stood at 1.7 billion. And finally, we remain well capitalized to continue our growth trajectory with total liquidity comprising cash and underlying debt facilities of close to 1.2 billion. I'll now hand you back across to Craig to go through our business performance an outlook for the 2021 financial year. Thanks, Oscar. On slide 11, our key non-financial metrics are set out. Total customers are up 15% year-on-year to 1,364. Total interconnections up 19% year-on-year to 13,051. And total cross-connects per customer up 3% over the same period to 9.6 per customer. On slide 12, further insight into the diversity of our business. Customers by industry shows strong growth in enterprise supported by cloud system integrators and connectivity partners. And the skew towards high density deployments reflects the growth of the hyper converged infrastructure and hybrid clouds. Slide 13, at the 30th of June, 89% of installed capacity was under contract and 75% of contracted capacity was billing and generating revenue. FY20 saw a 40% increase in billing capacity, a record of over 20 megawatts with 17 megawatts of contracted capacity at year-end still to commence billing. There is scale for continued improvement in operating leverage and for strong revenue and earnings growth. On slide 14, our capacity and utilisation. In Sydney, we've already sold over 20 megawatts of capacity S2 and have installed 22 megawatts to date. The ongoing strength of demand in this market has provided us with the confidence to commit to fitting out the remainder of S2 and commencing building works for S3. We've also committed fitting out the first 12 megawatts of that facility. In Perth, the initial construction of P2 is now complete, with phase one open to customers. And in Melbourne, M2 capacity expansion is progressing with 15 megawatts of new capacity being fitted out. The total planned capacity has been increased 50% to 60 megawatts in response to strong customer demand. Further, our land parcel for M3 has been purchased and early works relating to design and approvals are now underway. We also continue to prepare for our Tier 4 certifications of constructed facility and the Gold Certification of Operational Sustainability at S2 and P2. On slide 16, set that our outlook. Data center services revenue guidance of 242 to 250 million is underpinned by strong growth in recurring revenue and our long-term customer contracts. Over 17 megawatts of contracted sales are yet to commence billing at the 30th of June and will do so progressively during FY21 and beyond. We expect underlying EBITDA of 125 to 130 million with scale and earnings growth to continue to be driven by our Generation 2 facilities. Total CapEx for the year is expected to be between 380 and 400 million. FY21 is going to be a year of continuing acceleration for growth at NextDC. The foundations we have put in place over many years will see the company continue to scale rapidly through FY21 and beyond. Jesse, if we could please open the line for questions now. Thank you.
Thank you. If you wish to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone and wait for your name to be announced. If you wish to cancel the request, please press star 2. If you're on a speakerphone, please pick up the handset to ask your question. The first question comes from Jonathan Atkin with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Thanks very much um, and good morning. Um, so a couple of questions. I was interested in the uh, BFY21 guidance and um, the revenue midpoint uh, that you're showing. How much of that is based on contracted but not yet uh, commenced utilization um, versus, say, new bookings that might happen uh, between now and, and uh, year-end 21? Um, and then I have a second question regarding um, just the return profile. Is there any kind of an update you could provide on the current returns you're seeing on uh, M2 and S2? Thanks very much. Thanks, John. Appreciate that. Uh, and good evening to you, Ian, Pam, Francisco. Thanks for joining. Um, the first question in relation to how much uh, of the FY21 uh, current revenue uh, and EBITDA ultimately uh, is currently contracted. Um, the majority of our forecast for FY21 is already under contract, as you uh, know, John. Uh, in in the course of the year, really, uh, as we sign new customers and bring them online, um, it can take uh, three to six months in the enterprise space and six to nine months uh, in in the um, larger hyperscale space in order for contracts that we sign to actually be delivered and, and activate as revenue. So the majority of what we're seeing, uh, certainly in forecast today, uh, is already under contract. Uh, the second question, uh, just in relation to returns, pricing overall, um, we continue to be very pleased with meeting our return on capital expectations. Um, it's quite an interesting environment at the moment, obviously, uh, with people um, both looking to accelerate the move to the enterprise data center out of on-premise. So we've continued to see um, in the new COVID environment uh, further demand for that move out of office environments. And we're also seeing, obviously, you know, material growth in demand for uh, the network and cloud connectivity elements as well. So our, our overall return expectations um, continue to be in line with what was delivered previously. And we see good, strong performance uh, at the pricing level overall, uh, particularly given quite an interesting environment that we're all living in. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you. The next question comes from Kane Hannon with Goldman Sachs. Please go ahead. Good morning, guys. Just three quick ones from me, please. Firstly, just the contracted megawatts, just confirming that 70 megawatts doesn't have the four megawatts you guys announced on July 1. And then if that's the case, just give us a sense of, I suppose, the split of that 4.6 megawatts, you know, incremental to the 12 megawatts in VIC across hyperscale and retail. Um, secondly, just interested if you comment on how sales have been trending in July and August and whether there's been much of a slowdown as the economy's emerged a little bit from COVID. And finally, just the M2 comment and that, that big increase in capacity. Just explain a little bit more about what's happened there. Um, and how we should think about the incremental capex to hit that 60 megawatt target? Cheers. Thanks, Kane. Um, I'll break that down into three, I think, questions in there. So the retail, uh, wholesale, or hyperscale mix. Uh, as we normally do, the um, retail business generally tracks at around about 2,000 kilowatts a year. So we've seen similar numbers. Um, Obviously, two key forces driving that one is the move out of on-premise data centers. We still see about 70% of enterprise customers operating on-prem infrastructure. So that's driving uh, the first transition, which is the move to enterprise co-location. The second component being the move to uh, cloud, both public and private, for commoditized infrastructure. Um, so that's a similar performance year on year to what we've experienced previously. Um, network related demand uh, is, is trending uh, strongly and that won't be a surprise to anyone given the underlying uh, redesign of, of networks, particularly in a decentralized sense as we all went to work and school from home. Um, the second component uh, in question in relation to uh, M2 capacity change, the key driver there 
is that we have um, spent time redesigning the overall facility in order to be able to improve the total megawatts delivered. Uh, that required us to do um, engineering redesign works to both increase the total amount of power available and increase the, the building size. Um, we obviously sold more capacity at M2 at both uh, orders and options than we originally designed the site for. So the key driver of the upgrade um, by 50% to 60 megawatts was uh, the redesign of the site to deliver uh, all, all of those enormous options um, that sit on the back of those uh, announced contracts at M2. So very pleased that we've been able to uh, get M2 to deliver a design capacity in excess of 60 megawatts. Um, in, in the context of modelling, you can use similar capex assumptions to those uh, for all of the underlying um, dollars per megawatt uh, today. Um, we don't expect any change in the forecast for dollars per megawatt um, to get from 40 to 60 megawatts, just the overall site redesign from an engineering perspective. Uh, and the last uh, item came was um, what we've seen in July and August. And uh, obviously, uh, in, in the environment, particularly given um, Melbourne being in stage four lockdowns, uh, we continue to build and construct on site in order to be uh, delivering, obviously, all of that material capacity that we have contracted. So um, no change in, in the wholesale context of delivering all of those hyperscale contracts. And certainly, we're changing the way we're selling. So demand in July and August has, in an enterprise context has been similar. We've seen a few hundred um, uh, kilowatts uh, transact as we would ordinarily at this point in time. We've won some very important network-related uh, points of presence for um, major global expansion capacity that will go uh, to drive further demand in the Melbourne market. Um, so I think given the environment, particularly the challenges in, in many enterprises, um, the business continues to actually perform well. And we've seen a record pipeline coming out of FY20 and into FY21. Thanks, Kane. Thank so could you just confirm that four megawatt New South Wales contract? Is that in the, the 70 megawatts on June 30, just given how close it was to sort of, you know, the start of FY21? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Thanks. Thank you. The next question. The next question comes from Paul Mason with ENP. Please go ahead. Hey, guys, just a couple from me. Um, so the, the first one, just on M2, um, you know, obviously absolutely flew this half, um, but you, you know, you've, you've got the scalers in there, um, and, and there's more than two that are in the market in Melbourne. And so, just um, wondered if you can make any comments on on views around making further room again, because obviously the 60 fits the the two contracts with options, uh, but if you want another big player there, you might need to expand further. Um, the second one, just on the um, the M3 land purchase, um, I'm sure given you haven't made comments, you won't be able to go into too much detail, but it sort of looks like potentially that's, um, that's, that's either an amazing price for a Port Melbourne block or you might be looking elsewhere in the city, I don't know if you can make comments on that or not. Uh, and then the third one is just on Asia. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously like some costs for business development in Asia that have been in the accounts. Um, I think in February you guys were saying that that had sort of been put on hold, but maybe if you can sort of um, comment on, on whether there's any ongoing activity there or whether that's actually still on hold. Um, thanks. Thanks very much, Paul. Uh, so again, break those down. The first one in relation to hyperscale contracts, so you said that we had two. We have three, obviously, major global um, deployments of, of material size in Melbourne across M1 and M2. Uh, we expect, obviously, that uh, with the M3 uh, development that that will expand out even further. So work with those uh, customers to expand um, and essentially activate further capacity into M3. Um, we'll provide more information, as we always do. Once we've secured the site, we try and 
uh, keep the uh, information related to the overall development location and other things specific to us and the planners, um, the appropriate government officials and others uh, to avoid people getting in the way of the work that's going on. So once we've got the development approvals moved through shortly, we've made very good progress there, uh, both in design uh, and planning and support from the government, very strong, obviously the backdrop of a challenging environment in Victoria and just overall economic development, investment, job creation is critically important at this time. So very good support from the government despite the circumstances uh, down there. And I would expect that um, it won't be too long before we're in a position to disclose the location, uh, the overall design itself and talk a little bit more about uh, some of the customer commitments that we'll have there at M3. Um, so more on that, but uh, just to reinforce, obviously, um, three major existing deployments. There are more than that. Uh, that we have in Melbourne today um, with others that I expect will um, grow over time as that new region starts to develop. It's quite exciting opportunity for us to see the Melbourne region overall start to resemble uh, something similar to what Sydney is today. So it has huge potential to come through uh, in, in the next six to 12 months. And the last question, Paul, was in relation to Asia. We have um, an office in Singapore and one in Japan. We've um, continued to look very carefully at those markets. We still see, obviously, very strong demand from customers who'd like to see us take our uh, business into those geographies. Obviously, in the backdrop of the, of the COVID environment, it's more difficult to travel and move around and other things. So, look, I, I don't anticipate that um, that or this new world that we're living in will stop us from, from advancing the work that we're doing. But I, I think it's fair to say it'll certainly slow down um, travel and other things. You know, but we do intend to continue to look at where it makes sense to expand in the region. Um, overall, uh, most of our larger customers like, would like to see us operating in a number of those key markets. And, and we continue to look very closely for the right uh, entry opportunities. It's not our, our goal to want to buy someone else's legacy data center business. We want to develop a world-class leading quality business like it's taken us a decade to do in Australia. And I would anticipate that um, uh, over the course of the next year or so, we will begin that you know 10-year journey of building something across the region that's as successful as, as what we've spent time um, building here in Australia. So a little bit more on that in the not too distant future, but Paul, our, our plans haven't changed. We still desire to to want to see the company grow and, and take advantage of um, uh, the platform that we've built, and we think that we can do that across the region. So thank you, Paul. Jesse, next question, please. Thank you. The next question comes from Tim Plum with UBS. Please go ahead. Hi guys, how are you going? Great, thanks, Tim. Um, just two questions from me. Firstly, uh, you guys added a fair bit of incremental capacity in the second half and a fair bit of that coming in at S2, uh, 22 megawatts now. Can you give us a feel in terms of how many of those megawatts have been fitted out and are ready for delivery to the customers, please? Sure. Thanks, Tim. So obviously, um, we are... Uh, in a position now where we'll have, uh, for the first time for quite some time, uh, actually have some inventory to sell. So whilst we don't have a lot left um, between options and other things that we're working through with customers, I would anticipate that the balance of, of S2's capacity will will uh, soon be gone. Um, that certainly puts more pressure on us to deliver S3, our current forecast for delivering S3, uh, is going to be March 22, and at this point in time, you know, I would expect that uh, we, you know, we certainly try and avoid going dark in, in the market. Um, we have a relatively small amount of inventory compared to what we see in the context of demand. We want to continue to focus on building a, a great ecosystem, supporting our customers, and importantly, supporting our partners in the context of that diverse. Uh, enterprise and, and government business, and, and I think we've got enough inventory, uh, hopefully, to get close to seeing us through to the opening of S3. Um, uh, but 
you know, based on current pipeline and other things, it's, it, it is highly likely that we'll, we'll sell through the balance of what we have in S2 in, in you know, re relatively short order, but we are doing everything that we can to bring S3 online as quickly as we can. And you can see from the pack the early works uh, that is already underway there um, shortly uh, we'll announce the appointment of the, the main contractor for the development of S3 and we'll be working to bring that online in, in a uh, relatively short time frame. So thanks, Tim. Thank you. The next question comes from Nick Harris with Morgans. Please go ahead. Oh, hi, guys. Uh, it's a great result. Um, just two questions from me. Um, first one, just historically it's taken maybe two to three years for the hyperscale deals to ramp up to full billing. Obviously, the world's changed in the last six months. Just wondering, should we still be thinking two to three years, or could that ramp up profile get shortened to two years, just given the huge amount of demand? Uh, and then the second question, just on options, uh, that's a, a massive amount of options you, um, you have provided in the last six months. It's almost a decade of sales, so it's a really, really significant. So I just wondered if maybe you could give us, from your perspective, Craig, what you think needs to happen for them to get exercised? I know it's the client's call, but I assume you've got some sort of feel for what would need to happen for them to want to trigger or exercise those options. Thank you. Thanks very much, Nick. Uh, in relation to the ramp, so certainly in, in the past, the, the time for customers to move in, if you just think about the volume of infrastructure, the thousands of, of racks and you know, tens of thousands of, of um, servers and other uh, infrastructure that go into deploy on on hyperscale. Uh, we would certainly, you know, anticipate there's still a very physical element to to that fit out. So the the time to development, the, the building itself, the base building from site selection through to construction, you know, continues to be in the 12 to 18 month period, um, and, and then the time for customers to deploy the capacity that they've contracted tends to be within 12 to 18 months. Now, we have certainly seen um, that we uh, have an acceleration of customer demand. So we have customers asking us what we could possibly do to bring capacity forward. And that is certainly um, you know, a positive trend. It's, it's not a surprise to anyone, obviously, that uh, the volume of demand um, for all of these platforms is accelerating. Uh, but I sort of tend to see that, Nick, as a, as a shift um, that really represents the, the transition to a, a new working environment. So I don't see it as a short-term thing. I just see this as a, as, as a you know, really pull forward of capacity that would have come over time. Um, and, and, you know, the two to three years that it would have taken to ramp is probably 18 to 24 months. And, and that then leads into the second question in relation to the options and the scale of the options and what needs to happen in order for those to be activated. Uh, particularly in a new region like Melbourne, I, I think it is as simple as, um, you know, that those first tranches of new regions being consumed by enterprise customers and the capacity and demand forecast teams within our key clients we work very closely with, obviously you can't activate enormous amounts of capacity on very short notice. So we need to have um, regular and detailed uh, planning uh, work with our customers to be in a position to bring that forward. So I, I would say that we are going to see an acceleration. We are certainly already planning um, for bringing forward additional capacity, um, both in Sydney and in Melbourne. Um, and I do think the backdrop of, of the environment that we've been living in more recently will uh, simply just accelerate the adoption of compute and drive uh, acceleration into uh, more network depth and breadth generally. So um, can't give an exact time frame, Nick, but I, I think it's fair to say that we will see an acceleration uh, across um, hyperscale, hyperscale consumption both in the Sydney and Melbourne market. Thank you. The next question comes from Roger Samuel with Jeffries. Please go ahead. Well, hi, morning, guys. Very strong result. Um, I've got two questions. Uh, can you tell us about the medium-term outlook beyond FY21? Um, yeah, so it sounds like there's some pull forward of demand because of remote working. Um, I'm just wondering if you are 
concern that growth in contract capacity will slow down after FY21 when life goes back to normal? Or do you think um, that there is a next wave of demand uh, coming? Um, second question is um, on the plant capacity. So you've also increased the plant capacity at uh, M2 by 20 megawatts. Um, and I wonder if uh, there's any upside to uh, S2, which is currently planned for 30 megawatts. Um, you, you know, given that um, you know, 30 megawatts, it's, it's half the size of uh, M2. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm just wondering if uh, you can increase uh, the capacity at, uh, at uh, S2 as well. Thanks, Roger. I appreciate that. So, in relation to the medium-term forecast, uh, I would say that, again, not dissimilar to um, the previous couple of questions, it's an acceleration. There's no question that there is a pull forward of, of demand uh, in public and private platforms. Um, but I don't sort of look at that and, and get concerned about growth. I see the, the um, growth environment as a, as a positive tailwind for us and you know, the next wave or our ability to be able to continue to meet those demands. Clearly, you know, we are 10 to 12% of the market uh, domestically in Australia. Um, there are a number of others that will also uh, be in a position, I think, to benefit from the growth that we're seeing. Um, customers themselves uh, obviously uh, will continue to work to, to try and meet some of their capacity requirements as well. Um, but the growth issue is a, is a quality problem. The next wave is continuing, I think, to come. We've got better visibility to forward requirements than we've ever had any other time in history. The fact that we've got contracted options of, of reasonable scale just sort of goes to demonstrate the maturity of the planning work both the customers are doing on their side and we're doing in terms of capacity planning. So it gives me a really high degree of confidence that not only are we planning uh, to a greater extent for the next wave than we ever have before, but we've got much better visibility to know uh, two or three years uh, out what we need to be planning for in size and scale. And, and the answer to your second question, Roger, um, is that Yes, we, we obviously were able to redesign uh, M2 because the whole building uh, wasn't fitted out. It's a, it's a large block, whereas in, in the case of S2, if you have a look on page 17 of the results presentation, it's the first page of the appendices, there is a photo uh, of the fully completed S2 building from the exterior. And what you'll see is, is that the building now is fully fitted out. So um, in the case of S2, uh, 30 megawatts. It's an, an enormous building. It's a huge facility. It's extremely high density given the, the, the number of hyperscale customers that we're serving there. Um, and uh, clearly uh, the fact that we've already started building S3 um, means that you know, we, we will have pressure on us again to deliver S3 in record time, um, getting S3 underway while we're really just uh, having completed the, the delivery of S2. Um, gives me a, you know, a higher degree of confidence that we'll, we'll be able to continue to support our customers' growth requirements. But yes, at 30 megawatts, S2 uh, is fully fitted out and will be fully sold. And, and again, will represent very high levels of utilisation uh, given the nature of the customers that we're supporting there. Thanks, Roger. Jessie? Thank you. The next question comes from Mitch Sonigan with Macquarie. Please go ahead. Good morning, Craig and Oscar. Can you hear me? Yes, Mitch. Okay, great. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, just to the first one, on the outlook for 21, just a little bit more detail on the drivers. Just wondering what you've assumed in the guidance for upfront project fees versus occurring. Um, is there anything else that could be impacting that guidance, e.g. electricity costs? Thank you. So just um, tell us what the expected costs are in 21 for the Asian market review. Um, that will be excluded from adjusted EBITDA. It was 1.2 million in, in 20. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. I'll answer the, the latter and, and then come back to the um, former. But uh, in relation to Asia costs, the team is not changing current size that are working on site selection reviews uh, and engagement with customers uh, on building design and other things is unchanged. So it will look pretty much exactly like it does at the moment. That cost to continue to review 
um, locations for greenfield development in each of the key markets will be the same pretty much year on year. Um, uh, the the uh, earlier question, um, uh, I, I think that whilst um, I don't anticipate a, a lot of change in the mix year on year, um, obviously the, the bulk is recurring revenue, but just to comment on power specifically, obviously we're seeing power prices um, change and, and move down, which is a you know, great positive uh, impact. Um, so whilst that may uh, reduce revenue marginally, it will Im improve um, overall uh, returns. So uh, as you know, a very high percentage uh, of our power is passed through. So you know, the fact that power prices may come down a little improve our margins. Um, is a good thing right across the board, uh, and you know at the moment we've built in you know estimates for what those reductions in power prices would look like. But if you if you want a slightly more a detailed level of conversation on uh, power mix and forecast prices and where we think that will go, you're more than welcome to spend a little time chatting with Greg on on our forward power uh, contracting and, and where we see power prices going overall. Thank you. The next question comes from Siraj Ahmed with City. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, just two questions, uh, Craig. Just first thing on the rec on the pipeline. Uh, you mentioned record pipeline in your company on the call as well. So, just I mean, FY20 is a big year, especially I mean, calendar 20 has been a really big year. Um, just keen to understand how you think about um, new contracts this year. Is it is it more about delivery this year, or do you think and it could be strong bookings again from a whole field. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for the question. Look, I, I think it's probably going to be both. Um, it's going to be our – Flight 20 was our biggest sales year ever. Um, Ten did a great job, you know, proud of the contribution, not not just in the sales and marketing context, but everybody in the organisation. I mean, that, that pressure flows right through the team to deliver. Um, we, obviously, with S2 – you know, this, it was without question our largest and most complicated build. Um, it is a stunningly beautiful facility uh, of extraordinary quality. Um, customers are absolutely thrilled with what was delivered. So there's no question that you know FY20 was a big year in terms of delivery, a big year for the company maturing materially and systems and processes. You know you've got tens of thousands of active services thousands of active cross-connect and, and network and cloud on-ramp support services, you know, a large delivery and support um, team there day in and day out running a, a national business. So FY20 was big. FY21 will, uh, will be even bigger because of the record sales year uh, in 20. Um, and I would expect that this, again, could be a record sales year. Um, we certainly have enough uh, options contracted just in options alone, just the conversion of op options alone, and obviously the planning work that we're doing with customers with you know, multiples um, uh, of megawatts, uh, both at S3 and at M3. So uh, I, I you know, am reasonably confident that given the backdrop, the demand we're seeing, migration you know, for enterprise and government to co-location, and then the, com the combination of the network density driving more cloud by public and private and and uh, the combination of all of those factors um, could see FY21 again our biggest sales year ever so um, you know a big delivery year coming up enormous construction projects with M2, M3 and S3 um, not to mention the great work that's been done um, to deliver you know additional capacity in all the other markets so Thanks, mate, for the question. And, and yeah, both in a, in a delivery context and in a new sales context and in closing out options, there's no question that FY21 will probably be like nothing we've ever seen before. Thank you. The next question comes from James Bales with Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, I've got a couple of questions. Firstly, I wanted to touch on the liquidity and CapEx commitments. And you guys seem to have a really strong demand environment and seem somewhat constrained by your ability to deploy capital fast enough. And when you compare the 
CapEx versus uh, the liquidity on the balance sheet, there's not a lot of runway there. How should we think about the mix of capital incrementally from here? Thanks, James. Um, look, I don't think we're doing a bad job. I don't think we're constrained in terms of deploying it. We've got $400 million out the door in FY20 and into the ground. Um, there is a physical limitation on obviously you know, the, the, the volume that you can deploy. Um, but as it relates to the forecast for FY21, um, you know, we're reasonably confident between the big projects and the, the big projects being M2, M3, um, in planning and then obviously uh, S3, we still have plenty of headroom. So I guess two, two things, you know, you've got the best part of uh, over a billion dollars worth of um, cash yet still to be deployed. Um, the $300 million senior is, is undrawn still, so you've got more than $800 million in cash and $300 million in senior. Um, but on top of that, and, and this is something that we'll talk a little bit more about um, soon, uh, Oscar and the team, our advisors, have been doing, doing a, a, a material amount of work in preparing for uh, the next major step up in our debt packages. So there is a, a very large piece of um, debt work coming through that will give us an enormous amount of additional firepower in the future. So uh, I won't pre-announce what that is in, in detail at this point in time. There's a number of banks globally engaged with the team right now, uh, very well advanced through the process, and, and um, that's looking... Uh, really good, and I think um, again in the not too distant future we'll be in a position to announce uh, what that looks like. Um, but I'm very excited about what additional flexibility that will give us to fund the business's growth over the next few years. Thank you. The next question comes from Encho Rakowski with Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Hi, Craig. Hi, Oscar. Um, a couple for me. Firstly, I was wondering if you can provide us with some colour on the difference in pricing you might be seeing for the Melbourne versus Sydney markets, particularly for, for the contracted commitments you've announced over the past six months. Um, and just secondly, the follow-up to the funding question, you've spoken in the past about looking at partnerships with sovereign wealth funds um, to develop half-scale data centres. I'm uh, just interested in whether that's something you're still exploring, particularly now that you've raised capital. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I appreciate the question. So the first one on pricing is um, relatively straightforward. So again, if you look at the historical pricing um, on what we've signed uh, previously, so pretty happy with the um, pricing mix and certainly the revenue per unit metrics that um, you know, we've shared on slide eight, that $10,714 per square metre continues to trend up. And then the average revenue per megawatt um, coming out of FY20 at, at 4.4 million per meg. So overall, we're very pleased uh, with pricing and returns. You know, again, we are not the largest, cheapest provider of data center services in the country. We don't aspire to be the, you know, the largest, least returning company. Um, it's not our role in life. Um, we, we see our focus on building world-class quality tier four uh, data centers and building a diversified, highly diversified a business that serves enterprise and government and uh, hyperscale focuses on network sensitive locations. So again, our, our uh, focus is a little bit um, different to many of those companies that you would say are very price sensitive. Um, the second uh, comment in relation to pricing really between the markets that is Melbourne, Sydney is it doesn't really matter so much if you look at the markets on a global scale. The majority of hyperscale pricing across um, most uh, competitors is, is relatively similar. Pricing is published. I know um, John Atkin, who's on the call, um, publishes global pricing for uh, all of the, the cloud um, platform providers and gives great insight into uh, the um, pricing metrics in each market. And what we tend to find is that the prices in the US are you know, reasonably similar uh, right across Asia. Um, so that's something that we continue to watch, but uh, you know, again, no particular surprises or, or you know, big differences between what we're seeing uh, in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, 
And then the second question in relation to funding and partnerships. Look, the, the big piece of work on for the team right now is is working to to close out the the next big step up in our in our debt funding. Um, so as I've mentioned earlier, that's a piece of work we'll share fairly soon. But team are really well advanced and doing some great work there, and appreciate all the support from banks and others that are working closely with us to to support the company's growth plans over the next few years. Um, they're quite amazing numbers when you start to you know, step back and, and look at where the business is today and where it's going. So uh, some great stuff coming there. And, and the second element in relation to considering partnerships, yeah, look, some of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world would love to be obviously continuing to, to get access to the data centre um, market and you know, key players. Our business uh, is, is in a great position because we have the luxury of choice with those partners. So, you know, if I go back, you know, as little as five years ago, it was quite difficult to, to find um, partners that understood the data centre business. But you know, given the volume of sovereign wealth funds and others that you know, really desperately want to be involved uh, with data centre operators universally, um, we've got a great universe of people to to work with, and um, we continue to look at what that you know, what makes sense in that area, both in terms of the legacy. Uh, or the you know existing install base of assets, but also for future development. So as we start to consider some of the opportunities for building new developments on a large scale in key markets, you know Singapore, Japan, Philippines, Thailand, there's you know, a number of different areas that are that are all growing today across Asia, um, and partnerships certainly may make sense in some of those. So we're we're looking and still talking with people about what that may look like. Nothing to announce at this point in time, but certainly engaged in a number of conversations at quite a detailed level. Thank you. Thank you. The next question comes from Samir Chopra with Bank of America. Please go ahead. Morning. I have uh, two questions, please. Uh, one's just on CapEx trend, you know, beyond 21. Um, should we start thinking about a, a tail off in CapEx? I'm just thinking. You know, did this capex start to hold index on fit out rather than build, and therefore we should start to see that capex starts to moderate. That's kind of question one, and then question two is: you raise capital now. Um, there's potential there for for refinancing from the banks. When should we start thinking about dividend? Uh, is that you know even in consideration right now with in your discussions with the board? Thanks. Thanks, Samir. Uh, so. First question in relation to, you know, do we see CapEx trailing off at some point? Look, I think that is really very simple. Um, uh, you know, I guess the, the, the growth forecast is, is what drives the business's need to continue to, to fund growth. Um, we only spend money when we have, you know, largely we're, we're a customer-led business. We're an investment-led business. Um, you know, off the back of customer commitments. And, and we're extremely fortunate, obviously, to run a, a highly diversified business. We've got a network business. We've got enterprise and government. We've got hyperscale. Um, hyperscale clearly drives the demand for large volumes of capital, but they're, you know, they're offset by um, 5, 10, 15, 20-year commitments from some of the largest trillion-dollar companies in the world that are all AAA quality credit. Um, and that's why you know we, we don't have any issue supporting that with extremely large uh, larger uh, volumes of, of debt support. So what we're doing with the teams at the moment to to support that future growth really does reflect the maturity of our customer commitments, and it reflects the diversity uh, and and you know margin uh, performance in our business. So I think that the answer to your question, Samir, is is that do I see capex trailing off beyond 21? Uh, I don't simply because I see more pipeline and more customer contracts, you know, in FY20 to deliver in 21, and I see more opportunity for conversion to growth through options than we've ever had at any other point in time in our history. So, you know, the fact that we'll, we'll, we'll need to continue to work closely with our new debt providers, our existing and new ones, uh, over time to support that, you know, material growth is a, is a positive trend. Um, and, uh, I guess that that will also you know, be a byproduct of the second question. But the board talks about um, and is and continues to be 
um, you know, very focused on return um, on invested capital and return on equity and performance for our shareholders. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we're we're a customer focused business, um, but but we are here to serve um, our shareholders and and build a quality business over time. As I said before, I don't aspire to be the largest, least returning uh, operator. If we were, we can all go and do something else if that's the case. Um, I think dividends really come down to it is something that's discussed regularly by the board, but at the end of the day, we come back to that um, one important point, and that is that if we can continue to generate great returns, we can build a quality business uh, that is a long-term, you know, multi-generational asset that will be capable of producing extraordinary dividends in the future. At some point in time, if we're not happy with returns, we can always stop investing and start returning that capital to shareholders. But the, the decision point that we can continue to come to at this point in time is, is that the board are very happy um, you know, in, in uh, what our return on equity will look like for shareholders. Um, that causes them to want to continue to take advantage of the opportunity and the market while it is um, strong. And, and at this point in time, um, whilst we discuss uh, dividends and returns regularly, uh, there is not a plan per se for stopping investing uh, in the growth of the company. And, and I would feel reasonably confident to say when you are in a position to be able to continue to grow a business at 20 to 30% compound a year, maybe for the next decade, uh, our greatest days are in front of us, not behind us. So a lot of growth still yet to come. Thanks. Thank Nina. you. Thanks. The next question comes from Bob Chen with JP Morgan. Please go ahead. Morning, guys. Uh, just a couple of questions from me. Um, this firstly, you know, very strong year in terms of contract wins for the team. Um, can you talk a little bit about the contract process, uh, how long you might have been in discussions for these contracts, and was there a, was there a competitive process for these contracts? And then uh, the second question is really just around your international expansion ambitions. Uh, could you give a little bit of color on your sort of broad strategy there? Is it going to be more of the same, and what sort of size deployments would you be looking for? Thanks, Bob. Uh, first question in relation to contracts, the process, competitors. I referenced this a little earlier. I mean, obviously, you know, given the size and scale of developments that we're working on now, when you're planning a, an 80 to 100 megawatt data center, it's something that, you know, obviously customers are deeply involved in. And I think, you know, as, as these larger clients are maturing materially, you know, their process, their systems and processes and planning are maturing, but, the rate of growth in the industry, they're all struggling to keep up with serving their customers. Um, you know, we, we continue to see, uh, you know, maturity in clients' businesses, but, you know, the rate of growth that they are all trying to support means that, you know, when you're looking uh, two or three years out, just keeping up with today is a challenge, let alone, you know, knowing that you've adequately planned for the next two or three years. And again, I, I classify those as really great quality problems that we are incredibly fortunate to have. Um, but we are working more deeply with our larger clients than we ever have at any other point in time before on forward planning because you can't just wake up one day and make a call and say, hey, listen, I need 10 megawatts and I didn't tell you about it before. Or I need 20. Or in some cases, you know, we're getting to the point where customers are planning for um, you know, multiples of 20 in multiple locations. So that means that our level of, of um, forward planning has to be uh, in a in a place that it's never been at any other point in time before. You know, the, the future land acquisitions and other things that we spend time working on today are far further out uh, than any other point in time uh, in the company's history. I spend a, a lot of my time really just thinking uh, and working with customers on what the next five to ten years worth of capacity planning looks like, and we would never have been, you know, working on 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 that time frame before. Uh, they do they do still take time, and they they are still competitive processes. Obviously, you know, when you're in a business that in, in an industry that is growing at the rate we are, um, everybody wants to be taking a piece. And it's funny because when we when we reflect on this. You know, five or, or almost ten years ago, when we were in an industry that the jury was still out on, people looked at it and said, "Well, you know, that, that could go any any particular way. Maybe the cloud will take off. Maybe it won't." 
there was still plenty of people saying that um, cloud was a fad. You fast forward a decade, um, still my favourite quote uh, from Bill Gates, people almost always overestimate what can be done in a year and underestimate what can be achieved in a decade. And I think we'll see this, a similar acceleration again over the course of the next five to ten years, where the numbers in an exponential sense will just be difficult for people in a linear mindset to appreciate. It's extremely difficult to look at the exponential rate of growth over the last, even just the last five years and try and think what that means in the next ten. Um, but we are in a position now with the with the threes, S3, M3, uh, and the fours. Um, we're already planning for what S4 and M4 will look like and the size and scale of those. Um, so, yeah, I'm confident that we're doing and have a better handle on what planning looks like in the next five to ten years than we have at any other point in time. And, Bob, the last um, question is, is probably similar to the response I gave on Asia earlier. What do we see the model looking like, I think, is the important question, and that is, is that, again, we want to build a business that's unique to the next DC quality product and brand. Um, that means that we focus on enterprise and government. We build highly diverse network businesses with our physical elastic cross-connect products, and we combine those with the best of, of hyperscale platforms. Um, and we see the combination of all of those as something that continues to see customers want us to expand into the region. So we will certainly um, certainly want to build a business, not not you know buy a legacy one. We'll want to build a quality business like we have over the last decade in Asia. Uh, it's it's not a simple thing to do. Each of the markets are unique. Um, you know the emerging ones are always you know, come with more risk than the mature ones, but the mature ones come with more competition. But I am highly confident that the quality of product that we build. And the business, the platform, the people, the people process and technology investments that we've made and we continue to make in scaling the company will, will allow us to build out successfully into those markets. But we will do it in a disciplined way. Um, and I think, uh, you know, again, we'll share a little bit more on that uh, over the course of 21, but we will be disciplined in, in the actions that we take in expanding the business in Asia. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. The last question is a follow-up from Tim Plum with UBS. Please go ahead. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Good, mate. Sorry. I <laughs> thought I'd just squeeze uh, one more in there, if possible. Um, just You mentioned, you know, really down to, to how you can deliver um, in those core markets. What sort of run rate do you think you can do in terms of, A, building out additional capacity, but probably more importantly now, be fitting out that capacity um, within the uh, S2 and M2 locations? And is there anything that you can do differently to, to kind of accelerate that over the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah. Um, thank you, Tim. I would have been disappointed if you hadn't tried to sneak a second question in. Um, so that is a, that's a really great question. I think I'll start with, you know, I guess, just a reflection on how much the build process has changed and what we've learned um, through the development of S2 and M2. It has question, you know, without question, the, the S2 development, um, building that you know, massive hyperscale building, uh, doing it on a relatively small amount of land and building it um, up the way it is built today. The engineering team have just done an extraordinary job. I couldn't be prouder of Jeff Van Zett and Simon Cooper, you know, our, our chief operating officer and our chief engineer. Uh, and their teams, there's so many people that have um, done just extraordinary work in, in delivering these new buildings. Um, we went from a generation one design where we increased, you know, look, look at the performance of those buildings today. You've got $150, $160 million worth of capital invested and almost $50 million worth of run rate EBITDA. Those generation one buildings are you know, almost returning their, their um, capital every three years. Um, and, and their performance continues to improve. The level of energy efficiency and other things that the team has has designed into those buildings um, to get NABA's five-star certifications on those. They are, they are the most highly uh, efficient certified data center buildings in the country today. Um, but the team haven't stopped there. Not only have they uh, raised the bar in engineering and design and gone to uh, more modularized construction and delivery, uh, if you look at the way the buildings are built 
um, constructed and delivered today, a lot of the lessons in the first generation were applied to the second gen. Um, the second generation builds are now informing the third generation. So speed to delivery, construction and assembly of larger volume of components um, off-site uh, in the factories and then having them to delivered, delivered to site and installed is, is a, a key element of speeding up the overall supply chain. Um, I think the, the key lesson for us is not only do we want to be able to you know, reduce the amount of people on site in construction um, and, and you know, allow us to deliver a better quality product uh, on a, on a you know, shorter time frame, the other element is uh, the certainty that comes with being able to um, build and deliver a data centre uh, from off-site and living in a COVID you know, type of world, which I think we all have to adjust to and accept that this is the new normal. The stop-start of the global community, the stop-start of the ability to be able to travel and have people working freely in the community means that it puts a lot more pressure on organisations to do things differently. We had already put ourselves in a very strong position. So in Melbourne today, as an example, um, you know, there's, there's really very little impact to the overall delivery program as a result of um, you know, the whole state being shut down. And that program is still going uh, beautifully today. And, and uh, I think many of those uh, lessons that we've learned that are now going into Generation 2 and will go into our Generation 3 construction means that we can probably, Tim, um, you know, materially improve. And if I said that you know, the team might uh, um, you know, be capable of, of doubling the amount of capacity that we've delivered in previous years without you know, putting that pressure on them. I know they'll all be, um, you know, they've worked incredibly hard to get to the point that we're at today. They've done amazing work. I couldn't be prouder. And it's not just, again, it's, it's not just the design, engineering and delivery components. It's the operational teams. Um, Nathan McBride that leads our facility management team and his facility leaders around the country do extraordinary work. Um, Brett Ridley, our head of central operations, and the guys that maintain our data centre fleet and keep them uh, operating to world-class standards and allow us to get Uptime Institute gold operational certifications at the Tier 4 level. I mean, these are things that are, are world-class in the industry and just represent you know, the quality of what it is that we want to do uh, in the data centre sector. So I do think, Tim, you know, we can materially continue to increase the speed to deliver. Um, we are proving it uh, in, in the second generation designs now uh, with what, what is being delivered in, in, in the super T infrastructure for delivery of the uh, substructure um, and then the containerized delivery of, of our long lead time items. So I think as we watch this space, but yeah, could have another 20, 30 megawatt year coming up. Thank you. The next question comes from Mitch Sonnigan with Macquarie. Please go ahead. Yeah, hi, Craig. Just um, sneaking one more quick one. Um, thanks for that. Just on the interconnections business, I was up 90%. So it was a solid result, but actually by number, the ad slowed to 2079 versus 2,303 in FY19. So I guess just thinking about your commentary around a big uptick in demand for interconnections in the fourth quarter and on the call today. Should we expect an acceleration in 21? And just following on, it's at 8.1% of revenue. Do you see that trending towards maybe Equinix levels towards 20% over time? Thanks. Thanks, Mitch. Yeah, look, I, I would, um, I'd love to see it trend towards 20%. I think it's certainly capable. It's, it's a, a reflection, it's a byproduct of the maturity of the install base and size of your enterprise um, clients. and. You know, as we see more demand in public and private cloud, I mean, we've got more than 600 partners today, 70 connectivity service providers. I mean, it's a deep ecosystem. It takes a long time to build. Uh, and, you know, the more we focus on continuing to help our enterprise customers not only transition out of their office, but make the, the transition into that hybrid multi-cloud where they're connected to a multiplicity of service providers and networks, interconnections will naturally continue to grow. So it's a byproduct of that, uh, and it's a byproduct of the maturity of the facility. So, you know, year-on-year -year numbers, whilst it was up 19%, um, you've got to remember, despite those amazing numbers, FY20 was a year where we actually didn't have a lot of inventory to deliver. It was one of those years where, you know, we really 
um, were hustling hard to play catch up to, to get inventory to sell. So, you know, being in a position now where for the first time, actually, for almost a couple of years, we're going to have uh, inventory to sell, um, we'll see an even greater acceleration in the number of interconnections. So I think it's core to our strategy. It's critically important to serving enterprise and government customers. Um, it's, a, it's another key decision criteria for why we keep winning the cloud on-ramps. Cloud on-ramps go where the enterprise customers are. That's a really key factor for determining where you want to put a cloud on-ramp. You want to put your cloud on-ramp um, in, in the place that's most convenient to access uh, enterprise clients. It's not only the enterprise client accessing the cloud, it's the cloud deciding where the enterprise customer is and going there. And for us, fortunately, in almost every uh, location, um, we have been the choice for that reason. So, yeah, I, I think interconnections will um, continue to grow. I'd love to see them get to that, you know, Equinix level that is reflective of, a, of an enormously successful, you know, quite mature enterprise business. And Equinix has built one of the best in the world, and we continue to to see them as a as a fantastic. Um, builder and operator of data centers that have built something extraordinary over a couple of decades. Thank you. That does conclude the question and answer session. I'll now hand back to Mr. Scroggie for closing remarks. Thanks. Appreciate everyone taking the time to join the call. It's been a, an extraordinary year, um, a challenging year for all of you. I just want to wrap up by really sincerely thanking the team at NextDC. Uh, it has been Obviously, a challenging year for everyone, particularly those who have had to work and school from home. I know everybody has had to adjust to that new normal, um, but we've, uh, we've built a, an extraordinary business. We continue uh, to do great work, and we couldn't do that without the tireless efforts of the team, and I'm eternally grateful for how passionate, uh, engaged um, they are and continue to be. Um, it's a great pleasure. Uh, and, and my greatest honour to be working in this business and supporting uh, all of those team members today. And lastly, to thank all of you for your support, our shareholders. We wouldn't have the opportunity to do this if it wasn't for the support that we've had from for you over the last decade. Um, but I passionately believe that whilst we've, we've uh, built something great, um, it really genuinely is only the beginning. The network is playing out, um, supporting public and private cloud to build uh, what will be the platform for our digital future. All COVID-19 has done is accelerate many of the laggards that wouldn't have made change to the way they work and live to this new world order. Um, and we're in an incredibly great position to take advantage of that. I'm very proud of the team. I hope you're proud of, of the work that they've done to, to deliver another fantastic result. Uh, FY20 was, was, was a wonderful year, but um, FY21 is, is going to be something extraordinary. So thank you to uh, everyone in our shareholder base that has continued to support us. And, and I hope that um, uh, many of the most exciting years for the company are the ones that are yet to come.